listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Simmons. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer here as we begin today. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to dive into your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, we look to you to open our eyes uh, today to remove the scales, to um, expose the enemy to us, to show us the places where he has been tempting us, tricking us, setting up traps for us, maybe the places that we've been doled to his work, the, the places where he's begun to inch us and move us slowly away from God. We pray that you would expose him to us today and that we would repent and turn to you, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as Pastor Bill said this morning, we are in the midst of a series on consecration, and, and he began that series three weeks ago by telling us consecration is to be aligned with the holy. It's being set apart for God. And, and he said that's for a specific purpose. It's because God wants to put us on mission with him. Our God is a God on mission, and, and that's what he's up to. And Michael Nichols even talked about that, that, that we have this God that, that invites us into mission with him. And then Chris came behind him and did a great job starting us off where we need to start, and that is with the immense love of God. And if we don't start there, um, our efforts to become more holy, our efforts to improve our behavior as Christians will be done so that God will love us instead of because God already had, has loved us in Christ. See that? We'll start working so that God will give us favor instead of understanding that God already has given us favor. So your life should be this life lived out of thankfulness for what God already has done, not so that he will do something. All right? And that's why it's so important that we start knowing that we're loved. And then, of course, last week, Nathan talked about consecrated sexuality. And it was like going to the spiritual chiropractor, wasn't it? You know, you just, sometimes he just takes your head and, he, and you're laying back and all of a sudden, you know, he just cracks you. And you're like, oh, I didn't know I was that far out of alignment. But that kind of, kind of felt bad, but it felt good. And, and you don't really know what to do with it, but, but you knew that you needed that. Sometimes as the enemy introduces his lies into our lives, through our culture, or whatever he uses... Uh, we become doled to it. We become uh, just a bit numb to it. As you watch sitcoms and, and, yeah, well, you know, your life really is about finding your life in sexual pleasure. And then the scriptures have got to constantly be looked to to readjust us, to realign us, to bring us back to where God wants us to be. And today we're coming to a two-part series on temptation because temptation... Uh, is a key thing, understanding how to overcome temptation, understanding how to deal with it and wrestle through it and go to God in the midst of it is a huge key for you living a holy life. Because mark my words, you will be tempted from now until the day you die or Jesus comes back. It might sound a bit rough, a bit depressing up front here that you're going to be battling sins, you're going to be battling temptation the rest of your life, but it's true. And so this is a key thing to understanding how to live a holy life, how to understand consecration, temptation, and dealing with temptation, understanding the enemy's temptation, is a huge key to this. So we're going to be taking the next two weeks to dissect this and to look at it. And this week specifically, we're going to be looking at the tempter and his ways. Because it's not about if you're going to be tempted, it's about when and how you will respond. And of course, uh, Pastor Bill talked about this book here, The Screwtape Letters. Um, and C.S. Lewis does an excellent job, I think, in this book of highlighting some of the sins that just fly under the radar. Some of the things that we're just not looking out for. There's big sins that we all talk about a lot. But some of these things in here, he really, he really goes after and he, and, he, and he brings them to our attention in a way that says, oh man, that's me. And so that's why this is the book of the month. And when I refer to Uncle Screwtape, C.S. Lewis is writing from the perspective of a demon here. Uncle Screwtape is a demon who's sort of in charge of junior varsity demons, and he's teaching them how to tempt humans. He's saying, here, try this and take, and take this approach, and oh, my goodness, you're totally screwing up. You're doing it all wrong. And it's kind of a humorous satirical, satire on temptation and the work of the enemy, but it's brilliant. And I think you'll find it helpful. And as I refer to Screwtape, you just need to know that I'm talking about what Lewis is writing here, but he's writing from the perspective of the devil. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, so if you would, please turn there with me. We'll have it up on the screen as well. We're going to be looking at the first temptation here today and the ways that the enemy tries to trick us. He tries to trap us. He tries to snare us. He tries to dole us. And there's a specific pattern, I believe, that he goes through 
here in Genesis that can help us become more alert to his ways. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, let's read it, and then we'll unpack it. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is the word of the Lord. I want to lift a few big ideas out of this passage to sort of highlight about the tempter, the enemy, the evil one, Satan, as the Bible calls him. And the first thing is in verse 1 right there. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. You have to know something. Your enemy is crafty. Seriously, he is crafty. Um, I think that sometimes, like Pastor Bill was saying this morning in prayer, we get this idea Um, maybe from culture or from cartoons or whatever, that the devil is sort of this fat, lazy, nonchalant, sitting on the couch, eating potato chips, drinking beer devil. And he's sort of like, well, you know, if I get around to it, I might tempt a few people today, but I'm sort of lazy and I'm I'm sort of unmotivated and and I really don't feel like it, so, you know, I'm just going to kind of sit here. No, the enemy, he actually has virtues. He's very diligent. He's patient. He's crafty, he's brilliant, he's smart. And that's one of the things I love about the screw tape letters is it shows that this, this devil is thinking about you. He's watching you, he's studying you, he knows where you're weak. He comes after you, he's crafty. I like to think that the devil is like a really good fisherman. Now, I've actually been looking for an opportunity to bring my entire tackle box to church for a long time. And just so happens that today is the day. But there's a lot of different kinds of fishermen out there, you know. There's the, there's the, on the one end of the spectrum, there's kind of the free fishing weekend guys, and, you know, they show up with their 15-year-old rods and reels that are sort of rusty, and, and they just come out if it's a really nice day, and they never buy a license, and, and they have some tackle, but it looks a little bit more like plumbing equipment than fishing tackle, and, and they sort of hook up one of those worms they bought at Walmart and just chuck it out there and pray for a miracle that some fish would accidentally snag into their hook and they would catch something. The enemy is not like that. He's not nonchalant. He's not sitting back in his easy chair having a beer. He's crafty. He's got a tackle box full of sins. And, and you know, I like to think that, that he comes along and, and, he's, and he's studying you and he's, and he's looking at the season of life that you're in. And, you know, you have different times of, of the year even as you go through seasons that your moods are different, that you're more susceptible to things. Some of you get down and depressed a little bit in the winter. And he says, oh, what about this little thing? How about this little, about this little spinner blade here? How, what do you think about that? And, and some of you in the summertime, that's more of a, a, a difficult time for you. And you're more susceptible to certain things in the spring. Actually, I catch most of my walleyes in the spring because the ice comes off the lake and they think, man, it's like I'm being reborn. I'm just going to eat everything in sight. And it's a great time to fish for walleye. Sometimes the fall is that way. And I like to think that he comes along and he says, how about this? How about this little, you know, long minnow struggling for its life. Maybe this is the minnow of anger and, and, and rage and revenge. And he says, look what that person did to you. Look at them. You know, do you realize what they did to you? How could they be so thought, thoughtless and hurtful? And why don't you just come take a bite of this? You know, revenge would feel so good. It would just, it would just be so satisfying to look back at them and look at all these things that you could do. And, and you're the one suffering and, and they're not suffering. And he kind of wiggles it right in front of you. And, and he says, just come take just have one little bite. It's not going to hurt anything after all. I mean, I mean, you deserve it. You're, you've been suffering this whole time, and they haven't been experiencing anything. And you take a bite, not knowing that there are 
three sets of razor-sharp treble hooks waiting to hook into your mouth. And then maybe you say, oh, I'm not going to bite into that enemy. I can see that. I've bitten onto that lure before. I'm not going to take that one. He says, okay, very well. What about this? What about this beautiful little piece of work here? This is called a clown rat. Now, I've never actually seen a fish that looked like a clown um, in South Dakota. But they make lures like this, and they actually catch fish. I don't know why the fish bite them. I think it's because of curiosity. You know, they're just like, look at that. It's got a huge, big red nose on it, and it's got a flashy, ooh, look at that. It's a flashy silver underbelly, and he's, he's got a bright green uh, back on him. And, 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 and the enemy says, come on, look at this. This is the, the, clown, the clown fish of lust. Just come and take one bite. You're on your computer, and that ad pops up, and you say, come on. It's not going to hurt anybody. After all, it doesn't affect anyone else. It just affects you. Just take one little, just click that mouse. Just push that button. Just go to that link. Just come on. Just take one little bite. And you say, well, what could be so bad about it after all? I mean, look at that little innocent little clownfish, and I wonder what it is. And I wonder, oh, that kind of makes me curious. And you take one bite, never noticing that there are, underneath that shiny belly, two sets of razor-sharp treble hooks. He says, okay, you didn't like the long stick fish, you didn't like the, the clown fish, but what about this? What about a fat little perch? Hmm? <laughs> fat little perch lure? Look at, the, look at the bright colors. Look at the, a bright orange belly and a, and, a, and a beautiful yellow side and a little green. And, and after all, maybe this is the fat little perch of laziness, slothfulness, and, and this thing's just barely wobbling through the water. And what could be more easy than just to grab onto this, just a nice little fat perch meal? I mean, you're saying, you know, you're too tired to pray. Why don't you pray tomorrow? You know, your alarm goes off, that big giant snooze button just glaring at you. Ah, you don't need to read your Bible today. Just do it tomorrow. You're exhausted. Or maybe you get to work and you're, and you're on, you, you get into your cubicle and he's just dragging this little, this little fat perch of laziness and he's just, you know, your boss is kind of a jerk and this company, I don't like this company. And why don't you spend a couple hours on Facebook? Kind of cruise the net. And, and, and it's not really stealing from your boss to just do that and just to kind of laze out for a couple hours and just come take one little bite. I mean, it's just a fat little innocent perch. What could be, what could be more innocent than this? And, and, and you take a bite, never realizing that there are six treble hooks on the back of that innocent fat little perch. You know, he says, okay, you didn't like the fat little perch? Well, what about this? What about, what about a frog? You know, Walleyes actually like to eat frogs in the fall because they're trying to get fat um, for a little thing called winter um, that's coming, and they can sense it coming. And so you throw these bigger things in front of them, and they eat just about everything they can. And uh, I like to throw these in the fall. These are fat froggy legs. And so you say, hey, come get the froggy. What do you think about this little froggy? And you put this in front of them, and these frog legs just kind of wiggle right in front of them. And they say, what do you think? This, this looks pretty good, doesn't it? Delicious, juicy frog legs. This will fatten you up. This will make you feel so good. And maybe this is the, the froggy of, of gluttony. And, you know, we never talk about gluttony anymore in church, but I'm, I have a feeling that I have a problem with it. Um, because a lot of times when I'm about to pray or about to read my Bible, I hear, boy, I sure am hungry. You know, or if I have a spiritual problem, sometimes I'll hear, but, man, you know, a cookie would be really good right now. And then I, what do you know? After I have that cookie or after I have that burger and fries, all of a sudden my spiritual problems went away. Frederick Buechner said, gluttony is running to the icebox as a cure for every kind of spiritual problem. He says, come get the froggy. Come just have a taste, just one little bite. And from beneath, all this looks like is just a beautiful frog with juicy legs with a little green head on it. But when you look at the top, you bite into it, the razor-sharp hook waiting. Maybe it's, maybe it's not the frog of, of gluttony. Maybe it's something more subtle, like greed. Greed, I think, is the carbon monoxide of sin. It just kind of creeps in on all of us, and we really can't even tell. It's undetected. It's, it's tasteless and odorless. And look at these. These kind of look like money, silver and gold. And these things got a big flashy eye on them, and I actually like to use jigs more than anything else because they're more subtle. They're more subtle. It's harder for the walleyes to figure out what's going on. And they just get drawn in by that flashy eye, and maybe the enemy's saying, look at that job you could have. You just have to run over a couple of people. You could have the salary you've always wanted, the zip code you've always wanted, the house you've always wanted, the cars. You could have everything you've always wanted. It could be yours. Think of how much respect you could get if you finally landed that thing. Just come get one taste. Just come on. All the while, 
drawn in by the sight, but look, along with that beautiful, shiny, flashy eye, there's this gold hook, silver hook, waiting to trap you. It's okay. I couldn't get you on any of that. I'm going to go to the go-to lure. And if we could please delete this from the podcast, this is my secret lure, so I don't want people knowing about it. Um, <clears throat> this is actually my favorite lure of all times. You might think, why not the cool clownfish? Why not the, you know, the fat little perch? No, those are not the favorite lure of all time. This little thing is a walleye slayer. I'm telling you. This is a little green wiggle-eye jig with a cute little black and green miniskirt. And I like to put a little... It's sexy. I mean, it really is. And I like to put a minnow on it, and, and it, just, it just sort of almost floats through the water. And it's just so enticing, and it stays in front of them for so long that they just, they might resist the first time and say, no, 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 don't do it. And then they're like, whoa, what is that thing? So look at that. It's got a, it's got a mini skirt on it. It's got a little, a little minnow, and I just kind of drag it through the water, and these little, these little mini skirt little things that just flutter in front of them. And, and I think the enemy is sometimes saying, hey, you know what? You've resisted all my temptation. You're what we call a superstar Christian, aren't you? It's a little black and green miniskirt jig of pride. Spiritual pride is what C.S. Lewis calls the most deadly of the vices. And he says, boy, you're solid, aren't you? Boy, you're, you're just the steadiest. I bet God's really happy that he's got you on his team. You know? If, if there was a church of people like you, they probably wouldn't even have to preach on sin because you've got it. You've got it in the bag. He says, come just get one taste. Just one bite. And the walleyes, I think, a lot of times they come up just to kind of put their mouth on it. Well, I'm not going to just eat it. I'll just try it. I'll just... I just put my mouth on it. But the thing of it is, is I'm on the other end, and I can feel it. Right when they take a bite, they send the hook. Right when you come in and take a bite, he's tempting you. He's tricking you. He's teasing you. He's drawing you in. He's deceiving you. So the enemy is crafty. We need to understand this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour He's not fat devil. He's not fat, lazy, nonchalant devil eating potato chips. He is out to get you. He's throwing everything in his tackle box of sin at you. Subtle little things, big things, whatever he can do. So most of them are not even evil things. If he could just get you obsessed with sports, he would love that. If he could just get you to work a million hours a week, he would take that any day. Sports and work are not evil. Food is not evil. It's good. It's a good thing that God's created trying anything he can to draw you away from God. John 10, 9 says that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I believe the first step in overcoming temptation is believing in your heart that this temptation is real and that there is a tempter who really, really wants to destroy you. If you don't believe that, you will bite more hooks than you can imagine in your lifetime. You will never learn to see through his traps. You'll never learn to see that that's not a real piece of food. It's a trick. It's a bait. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, that one of the enemy's clearest tactics is to keep us in ignorance of him. You know, Wormwood writes a letter back to Screwtape and says, should I keep my patient in ignorance of my existence? And Screwtape says this to him. He says, our orders have come from the high command, and our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. He says, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to a picture of something in red tights, and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Sometimes I think that's what happens when we start thinking, oh, the devil's tempting me. He says, oh, come on. You don't believe in fairy tales. I mean, that's in the far side jokes. You know, anybody ever like far side jokes? I, I used to love far side jokes. They're real sarcastic, and they got these fat devils with horns and, and pitchforks, and they're sort of prankster devils, you know, saying, would you like smoking or non-smoking? Just kidding, it's all smoking. <laughs> you know, and then they're, and they're, just, they're just always just joking around with people, and they're sort of innocently just, you know, and you can get deceived thinking that that can't be real. Therefore, the enemy can't be real. He wants to cloak himself. He wants to disguise himself. That's why if you ever go out fishing with me and we get in our waders, we don't like say, race you into the water, guys. Splashing all around. No, we go in quietly. If someone does race in the water, they're not coming again. Right? <laughs> Going quietly. 
Don't let the fish know that you're there. That's what the enemy's doing. He's crafty, and part of his craftiness is to keep us in ignorance of his existence. And we get to the second uh, thing that we see here in verse 1, and that is, he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The second thing the enemy does is he gets us to doubt what God has said. I think this question that he asks, did God actually say, I think that's coming at us a million times a year. Like, I just think he's asking that question. It's his favorite question. It's his go-to thing. He just used that to soften you up. Did God really say you weren't supposed to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend? I mean, I know what Dr. Hitchcock said last week, but after all, he teaches church history, and couldn't he be living in the past a little bit? And, and you know, I mean, I mean, that's kind of old-fashioned, and it's kind of archaic, and, you know, I mean, this is 2014, for crying out loud. I mean, you can't live there your entire life. And did God really say that you're always supposed to forgive? I mean, certain things I could understand forgiving, but look what that person did to you. How could you ever forgive that? God isn't that kind of a God that would force you to forgive that person. I mean, what's going to hurt? Just holding one little grudge. Did he really actually say that you needed to do that? Did he really say that, you know, he doesn't like when we gossip about people, and so, you know, when you're at work and everybody's trash-talking the boss in the break room, you're you're probably supposed to just not say anything. And, but, you know, I know that you're going to be unpopular if you do that. So did God, you know, did God really say that? Or does that just apply in some circumstances? Or maybe there's a different interpretation. We should look at a different version. You know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe there's something else here that we're missing. And I don't, I don't see how that could be in the scriptures. I don't know if God really said that. This is why it's so important that we're reading our Bibles, like, daily. You know, like brushing your teeth. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to be... You know, I don't want it to become just a habit. Well, you know what? Some habits are really great. Nobody says, I don't brush my teeth unless I feel like it. You know what I mean? It's a good habit to be in. Read your Bible every day, whether you feel like it or not. Because you need to be able to say, yes, Satan. As a matter of fact, God did say that. As a matter of fact, that is exactly what he said. And so, no, that's not what I'm going to do because God said that. After a while, unfortunately... Doubt begins to grow in our minds, and then the enemy moves to the next stage, which is the outright lie. Eve responds beautifully in verse 2. She says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she responds how we're supposed to. She says, As a matter of fact, serpent, this is what God said. You're going to die. And so the enemy moves to his next most powerful tactic. He says, But the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you will not surely die. Now, just pause for a minute. I mean, she didn't seem to say, oh, you're not going to die. I can't believe he sold you on that. You think you're going to die? That's a bold-faced lie. Because let me tell you something. That, that's the biggest lie that's ever been told in the history of humanity. Because everyone and everything from that time on, with the exception of Enoch and Elijah, has died. You and I, because of that lie, unless Jesus comes back before we die, we'll die. Nothing could have been further from the truth. He just bold-faced, outright lies to her. John chapter 8, verse 44 says, The enemy is a liar, and lying is his native language. He doesn't speak Swahili, or English, or French, or German. He speaks lie. He's good at it. It's his native tongue. It flows out so naturally. You never met someone like that? They just lie without even shifting their eyes or without even their pulse racing at all. They just, they're just so good at it, like lawyers and politicians maybe. I don't know. I, I'm not, just kidding. I mean, if you're like impressed by it, you're like, wow, you actually just lied without, I mean, it was like it was natural for you. He's a pro at it. He's good at making it sound like the truth. He's coming to you all the time saying things like, oh, come on, it's no big deal. It's not going to affect anyone else. The truth is it affects all of us. That's what Nathan was saying last week. He comes to you and he says, oh, come on, there's not really going to be any consequences to this. And besides, no one will ever know. That's a huge lie. You know, God knows, the enemy knows, and he's going to use it against you. That's three people already. It's never no one will ever know. It's a huge lie. And most often when he tells people, no one will ever find out. Come on. 
anyone's ever going to know. Usually those are the kind of things that wind up on CNN. And you're like, crap. Why did I think that? <laughs> Why did I think no one would ever find out? You know? He's lying to you all the time. He says, you're just doing this because this is who you are. Don't try to deny who you are. I know you did that thing with Jesus a while ago, but he hasn't really changed your life. You're not really brand new. You're a slave to this sin. This is who you are. Why are you trying to act like something you're not? Why are you trying to resist this? You know you want to do this. This is who you are. You're a pathetic sinner. There's no reason to deny that. All the while, the Bible says, no, you're not a slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness. All the while, the Bible says, no, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're brand new. He said, Jesus Christ has, has conquered sin for you. He set you free. He says, Jesus never really made any difference in your life. You're no different. You haven't changed. He lies to us. Then he moves to the next stage. After lying to, the, after lying to Eve, he says in verse 5, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he lies. First of all, he gets us to doubt what God has said. Then he lies. And then he moves on to um, get us to doubt God's character and, and get us to question whether or not God is holding out on us. And in doing so, he always promises us something in the meantime, in the stead. He says, this is what I can do for you. Drops thoughts in your head about Oh, if you weren't a Christian, you could really have some fun. Look what he says to the woman. He says, you know, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. He says, God is holding out on you. In lying to Eve, he's really saying, God is lying to you. God has lied to you because he's pretty insecure about his position. He's quite territorial, actually. And he knows that if you do this, you're going to be on level with him. And he doesn't want anybody on level with him. So he's, he's just sort of protecting himself here by lying to you and saying, don't eat of that because you're going to die. So when the enemy lies to you, he lies about God. Because God doesn't want you to be happy. God is just trying to ruin your fun. God is just trying to, to spoil your good time. He doesn't want you to have any joy or pleasure he wants you to just sit over there in the corner and be a nice boy or girl, all bored to pieces. That's the enemy's saying. And then he comes around and he says, look at me. Look at me. This is where you're really going to be happy. I've got it. I've got the secret. God's lying to you. He's holding out on you. There's something more. There's something way more. And if you'll just come with me, if you'll just take a bite, if you just take one look, if you just click that mouse, if you just touch that button, if you just take one drink, just one puff, you can have it. Come on over here. He promises us something. Friends, here's the truth. Not a single one of us in this room ever sin out of duty. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, brother, long day of fornicating ahead. <laughs> you know? Oh, man. Better go get to slandering some people today. Got a lot of gossip to do, and it's got to be done, so somebody's got to do it. You know, and nobody does that. You know, nobody, nobody sins out of duty. We sin because sin and the enemy promises us something. It promises us something. It makes bold proclamations about, hey, if you, can, if you just come over here, if you just click that button, then you can finally be happy. And the best the devil can do is to offer you a cheap counterfeit of the good pleasure that God has given you, that God has offered you. So he's peddling little cheap knockoffs, little cheap counterfeits. He's saying, come get this. And that's really just a sick twist on the good thing, the real lasting joy, the real lasting pleasure that God has offered you. Screwtape lets Wormwood know about this in one of the chapters. He says to Wormwood, he says, I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his, meaning God's, invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Think about alcohol. God wasn't surprised when grapes fermented. But the enemy's saying, hey, 
come over here. Take this like this. Use this as a medication. Use this to solve all your pain. Don't run to God with that. Run to this with that. Think about food. Food's a great thing. I love it. But he's saying, come get this. Come take this food in this way. Come take it at every possible moment so you can be comforted. Don't run to God to be comforted. Run to this. This will work. You just need three cinnamon rolls. You don't need to pray. saying, come, God has designed sex. It's a great good for us. He's, he, he wants you to, he wants sex to be a, a, a valuable, pleasurable, amazing thing between a husband and wife. But he said, come take it this time. You're in middle school. Come take it now. Come take it in high school. Come take it in college. If he can't get you to do that, now that you're married, come have it with this person. Come have it with this person. He wants to twist the good pleasures that God has invented and take them out of context. It's important to realize, therefore, that overcoming temptation, I think, is just as much about saying yes to the good, lasting, genuine, authentic pleasures of God as it is about saying no to the cheap, counterfeit pleasures of the enemy. It's just as much a yes as it is a no. So often people think, okay, great, we're going to talk about temptation. So that means no, 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 no to all the good, fun things. And yes, yes, yes to going to Bible study and praying and sitting alone in my room and being pathetic. No, that's not what it means to be a Christian. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It means you say no to the cheap counterfeit. You say no to the McDonald's hamburger. You say yes to the filet mignon. You say no, 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 that's just a cheap counterfeit, Satan. And you say yes to the good pleasure that God has offered. That's what Christians do. We say, no, that's a cheap knockoff. That's a trap. That's a, that's a death trap. It's got nothing satisfying, nothing fulfilling in it. God is a hedonist, after all. What's a hedonist? A hedonist is a pleasure seeker. Someone who is seeking the pleasure of his beings, the, the good and the happiness of his beings. And a lot of times we associate hedonists with people that visit nude beaches and have orgies and get drunk all the time. But God is a hedonist, and Lewis brings this out in his book. It's one of the most stunning uh, things that he brings out, that God's desire is for your ultimate pleasure and happiness. Now hear me out. Uncle Screwtape acknowledges this to Wormwood in chapter 22. He says, speaking of God, he's a hedonist at heart, Wormwood. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Quoting Psalm 16, verse 11. By the way, the devil knows scripture. You should know that. Ever stop to meditate on that? That the psalmist says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not cheap little counterfeit pleasures that'll give you pleasure for a few minutes, a few seconds, but pleasures forevermore. God has said, come get the real, genuine, lasting pleasure in me. Come find it in me. There is joy like you've never imagined. I mean, think of the ending of the story of Christianity. It ends in a new earth that God remakes, free from evil and sin and death and pain and crying and all the things that we hate and full of all the richness and joy that we can imagine. And God himself is there to fulfill us and make us happy forevermore. And we worship him, and we find our greatest, deepest satisfaction being with him, who we're created for. St. Augustine, uh, in the second and third century, one of the great church fathers, had a rough battle in coming to this realization that he was made for God and that pleasure and satisfaction is only found in him. Maybe that's why he's one of my favorite characters in all of um, Christian history, but he really battled his sex drive. And, um, man, I mean, he prayed one time, Lord, make me chaste, but don't do it just yet, you know? And some of you are praying that prayer right now. You're like, I know I need to quit this, but I really don't want to. I still think that life is found there. I still think that's where I'm going to be satisfied. And in his confessions, he said it got so bad that his mom came to him one time and said, Augustine, you really need to make sure you're not sleeping with any married women. <laughs> and guys, if you ever have your mom come to you and say that, you know you have a huge issue. Um, but he got to that point. He really looked to sex to, to satisfy, to be that pleasure that would finally fulfill him. And then in the end, he came to confess this and prayed this to the Lord. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. It's probably one of my favorite quotes in all of church history because it's so true. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. You were made for God. You'll never be at home apart from him. 
You'll never be truly free apart from him. there, There is only pleasure, true pleasure, lasting pleasure in God. There is no such thing as happiness until you find your happiness in God. There is no such thing as real joy and peace until you find it in God. There's only cheap counterfeits that last for a moment and then leave you more and more and more empty. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We see this in our world today. You don't have to look too far. Just look at some of our uh, famous athletes and movie stars and celebrities. They're very, very empty people on the most part. Most of them become wildly successful beyond their greatest dreams. And a lot of them are just absolutely empty and depressed. Uh, This time of year, I always think about, you know, what's really going on in the lives of these football players? You know, because the Super Bowl's next weekend, and uh, we just watched uh, Peyton Manning and the Broncos defeat Tom Brady, praise God, last weekend. And, uh, (laughs) and, You know, I got to thinking about Tom Brady again this week because, you know, I'm fascinated by Tom's life. Tom is a, a, a GQ guy. I mean, he's got everything going for him, three Super Bowl rings. Um, he's married to a supermodel. And everybody thinks, man, Tom Brady's life would just be great, you know. I mean, if I had that life, I, there would be nothing more to have, you know. I saw one guy uh, post on Facebook this past week. It just, just made me chuckle. Uh, he posted after Tom lost, uh, when Tom loses, Tom still wins, and posted a picture of his, his supermodel wife, Giselle Boonchin. And I thought, now how naive, and really how unchristian, to think that that is actually going to satisfy him. And there's many levels of, of deception there, but the first one is that I just don't think supermodels make great spouses, because they spend a ton of time thinking about themselves, you know? And, and so I just think Tom's probably the most miserable person ever, and he just can't say it, because she'll probably beat him up, you know? <laughs> But anyway, when Tom loses, Tom still wins, I guess. But this is what Tom Brady said to sort of clear our eyes about the the truth here. Uh, This is what he said after he won his third Super Bowl ring, supermodel wife, good looks, everything's going for him. He said, he's being interviewed after his third Super Bowl, he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, but me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this, isn't, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. And Croft asked him, what's the answer? Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. It's like Augustine. Brady's heart's restless until it will rest in Jesus. And I pray that he would find in Jesus what he's always been looking for what he will never find in sports or fame or marrying 10 other supermodels. It wouldn't matter. He'd still be thirsty. See, Satan wants you to believe that you're missing out. He wants you to believe that you're like the kid on the outside of the playground looking in. And he says, if you just open that gate, if you just come on in, then you could finally be happy. He says, happiness and pleasure is barely eluding you. You're so close. Just come on in. Just go ahead. Just take one step. Just come on in. Once you do, once you open that gate, once you take the bite, once you grab a hold of the lure, he has a plan for you. He has a plan of what he's really going to give you. He's offering you something juicy. But like a good fisherman, he has got a plan. Screwtape says to Wormwood, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It's more certain and it's better style. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. That is what really gladdens our Father's heart. So just like when I'm tempting that walleye with that little green wiggle-eyed jig, so innocent looking with that little black and green mini skirt tail and a minnow, and I'm, I'm just wiggling it along, just kind of popping it a little bit, and he bites onto it. He thinks he's getting an easy meal. And I hook it into the back of his mouth and reel him in, give him nothing, put him in my fish basket, take him home, fillet him, and fry him. And that is a small picture of what the enemy wants to do to you. He wants to tempt you, tease you, offer you something, say, this is where life's going to be found. This is where you can be satisfied. Come get a taste. Come have just one bite. And once you're hooked, he takes you, takes your soul, and gives you nothing in return. It's that formula. 
an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Doesn't that sound like addiction to anyone? There's been so many studies done on pornography now. And actually, you know, like Nathan mentioned last week in his talk, um, the world is even starting to say, hey, I think this is bad for people. You know, because, because people are starting to become more and more addicted by it, and then they need more and more of that thing to give them that neurological mental kickback. So at first it starts off kind of innocent. The enemy says, yeah, after all, you're in control, and this, there's no real people involved here, and you can just do this, and it's just fine, and nobody's being affected, and nobody's being hurt, and you start, oh, and you look at this, and that gives you this amazing mental kickback, and then you look at a little bit more, and then you need a little bit more and a little bit more. Now you have people staying at home, missing work, three or four hours on the Internet every day looking at porn. You wonder how people get into sick, twisted porn. It's because of this formula. An ever-increasing craving. The more you drink, the more thirsty you are. You look at some, and you need more and more and more and more. But you're still never satisfied. You're still never satisfied. That's what he wants to give you. He wants to give you an addiction. He says, come and get it. That's what really makes Satan's heart glad. It's like drinking seawater, hoping to quench your thirst. Just guzzling it by the gallon, saying... Man, why am I more thirsty? I'm drinking water here. And you're like, there's salt in it, bro. Come on. You know, he's giving you seawater. It's just going to make you more thirsty in the end. It's not going to cure. It's not going to quench what you've got going on. And Satan promised Adam and Eve something in the garden that day. He promised them that they could be like God. And, of course, he could never deliver on this. But I find it interesting that the first sin was idolatry. Wanting to take a bigger part in the story. Not wanting to be in the part of the story that God gave you, but wanting to be on level with God. And since that time, from, from the garden to the Tower of Babel and on and on and on throughout human history, all sin has sprung from idolatry. Wanting yourself to be in the place of God, saying, I'll find my own happiness, I'll, I'll create my own pleasure, I don't need anyone telling me what to do. Or putting someone or something in the place of God. Saying, if, if I just have this one thing, that's all I need, to be happy and to be fulfilled. This, this one thing is, is more fundamental than God to me, to my happiness, hope, joy, and fulfillment. Idolatry is the first sin, and it's what we're prone to over and over again. And Adam and Eve bought it. They bit into the temptation. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They take the bait. They bite the lure. They get hooked. And then you notice a big switch here. Something happens. Shame enters the world for the first time. They start covering up. They're like, why, why do we realize what's going on here? We're naked. You need to understand this, and many of you know this because you've battled with with cyclical sins um, for a long time here, but the enemy is your tempter on the front end saying, come, get a taste. Come on, take a bite. But once you bite in, he immediately switches to being your accuser. He says, you pathetic loser. You bit on the little green jig with the little black and green miniskirt last time. You know? I mean, how many times are you going to bite onto that? You're an idiot. You're a moron. You're unbelievable. You're pathetic. I can't believe you fell for that again. That's the same trick. I can use that trick on you almost every time, and you keep biting into it. You, I can't believe you call yourself a Christian. You're absolutely pathetic. God certainly doesn't want to see you. I bet God throws up when he sees you. You should run from God. You need to run from your church. You need to run from your life group. You need to go fix yourself. I mean, you're messed up. I don't know anyone. I I can't think of anyone who's bitten onto that lure that many times. And he'll just do this over and over again in your head. And you're just like, oh, he's right. I'm pathetic. I'm a loser. And you run. Revelation 12, verse 10, calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. He says, look at what you've done. You're so stupid. The enemy's work is complete when he watches you running from God. Look what happens in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is what he wants. 
This is his ultimate goal. When he sees you running from the source of life, when he sees you running from the one who's loved you so much that he gave his son for you, he says, yes, got it. Got it, mission accomplished. Screwtape says this to Wormwood in chapter 12. He says, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He will try anything, good things, just... He'll take family. He'll take work. He'll say, whatever. Just, I'm just going to try to distract you. Just turn you this way. Just come over here. Look this way. You don't need to pray. You don't need to read your Bible. You need to come over here. You don't need to go to church. You need to do this. He wants you to bite on the big lures, but he'll take the small lures. He'll take the sudden change where he jerks you away from God and throws your life down a spiral, but he's more, he's, he's more effective, and he's more content to take the, dra- the gradual approach. He'll use pornography, and he'll use shopping. He'll use hate and bitterness, and he'll use gossip. He'll use rampant greed, and he'll use a clinging desire to security. He'll use fear, try to bully you around, and he'll use spiritual pride. He'll use anything, whatever he can do, but just wants to nudge you away, just drift you out to sea, just move you away from the enemy, however he can do it. He wants you to move you away from God. That's why it's so important that we learn to detect his efforts and resist them. So you say, okay, Pastor Dave, I get it. I get it that I have an enemy, that he's out to get me, that he's trying to trap me, he's trying to tempt me, he's trying to trick me. Maybe some of you here today are saying, I really can't think of something right now that's been tempting me. And maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you don't have any of those those real temptations. I'm asking you to begin praying. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where he's trying to deceive you, where he's trying to dole you, where he's trying to lull you to sleep. If he can't get you on the, you know, the clownfish, he's just going to try the, the more subtle techniques. He doesn't necessarily need you to, to, to hook you and, and get you into some sort of spectacular wickedness. Sports will do the trick. He'll use sports. Just get them to play fantasy football 24-7. Just get them to think about that all the time. Don't let them think about the mission that God has put them on. Don't let them think about growing in God. Don't let them thinking about encouraging other believers. He'll use anything. So you say, where do I begin? Just begin praying, asking the Holy Spirit, where do I start? And there's some of you in here that are saying, Pastor Dave, I have got, my, my mouth probably looks like a tackle box because I have bit into every lure that the enemy has offered. Everything that he's thrown in front of me, I'm pretty much sure I'm bit. I'm not sure if I have any lips left. I've been hooked so many times. I want to say to you that there is hope. There is hope. All right? Um, you may be saying, how do, I, how do I get off this path of temptation? How do I start resisting temptation? I want to be clear to you that there is no magic pill for this. That you are not somehow going to be free in a place where, I, I think sometimes we fantasize this about, about this, that as we get uh, further along in our Christian life, we get away from the place where we have to resist the enemy. No, you will have to resist him your entire life. You will be tempted by things your entire life. But God promises us that you can have victory over sin. You can have victory over sin, that you can resist temptation. And it's because of one person. And so I'm going to tell you that the place to start is by running to Jesus. You run to Jesus today. If this is you, if you're just like, I've got so many temptations, I don't know what to do with them. I've fallen, I've bitten the hook Every time, the last hundred times, I'm getting depressed. I've bitten the hook so much. I want to encourage you to run before, during, and after your temptation to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Even when you screw up, you run to him. Why? You need to do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did. They ran away from God. You need to run to him. Why? Why do you run to Jesus? Well, first of all, you run to him because he gets it. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says this amazing passage that I think we forget about sometimes. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Talking about Jesus here. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, it's hard for me to imagine, but Jesus, he was a man. He hung around prostitutes. You don't ever think he had a thought run through his mind, like, I bet she would give you what you want. You know? Jesus had amazing abilities, amazing power. You don't think that his power could have brought him some incredible wealth? You know, they tried to make him king one time. They tried to force him to be a king. You don't think that was tempting for him? You run to Jesus because he says, I get it. Most of the time we run away from him because we think he's like, I just, I can't look. I need, I need some sort of glasses, you know, because I just, I can't look at your life. It's too disgusting. Most of the time we just want to run from him because we're like, I, I can't bear it that he would see me like this. But he's saying, I get it. I get it. I felt temptation. I understand how that feels. I understand how that pulls at you. I understand what the enemy's doing. He's promising you something. I get it. I'm here for you. I've given you the Holy Spirit like we sang about today. I've given him. Run to me. Run to the Holy Spirit. Run to the Comforter. Run to the one who can help you. Saying, I understand. And second, you run to Jesus because he's the only one who was tempted his entire life and yet never bit into the enemy's lures even once. He never gave in even once. He lived the perfect, victorious life over temptation. Then he died the death that was meant for us, and then he rose again from the dead, conquering the consequences of sin and breaking the power of sin for us forever. He did this. Not only that, but Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, if we would read a few verses longer in this passage, it's the first prophecy in the Bible telling about what Jesus would do to the tempter, this one that we've been focused on all morning, Satan, this evil one, this crafty one. God said to the serpent, that the deceiver, he said, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Jesus Christ has crushed the head of the tempter. Your enemy has been defeated. Martin Luther said it like this. He said, the dragon is slain, but the tail still swishes. You've got to watch out for him. You've got to be on your guard against him. But ultimately, you can have victory over temptation because our great hero, Jesus Christ, has won the battle for you. Amen? Let's pray.